This podcast is a production of Journey, a church community inspiring people to live big. For more information, please visit cincyjourney.org. understood by everybody you know, he'd make the, they would be funny things and and though they didn't make much sense it ended up people would quote them all the time despite that uh, one of his most quoted um, sayings that he had was it ain't over until it's over yeah and that you know there's all of us who have um, rooted for the Reds have prayed that that it ain't over until it's over uh, how about this one maybe you can finish it this is like deja vu. Yeah, all over again. He said baseball is 90% mental. The other half is physical. Speaking of a famous restaurant in New York, Yogi one time says, well, nobody goes there anymore. It's just too crowded. He's talking about a, a record one of the ball players had set, and he said, I thought that record would stand until it was broken. And here's one y'all might keep in mind. You should always go to other people's funerals. Otherwise, they won't come to yours. He was once interviewed about all these funny sayings, and they said, and, he, and in that interview, he said, well, I didn't really say everything I said. And here's one of the most famous ones. I'm sure you can finish this one. When you come to a fork in the road, Take it. You know, one of um, Jesus' things is he made quotes. He, he said these things that kind of like yogiisms. They were a little bit hard for the people to understand what he exactly meant by those things. Uh, you kind of know what he was saying, but after he said them, you might pause and say, what? You know, and one of, one of the favorite topics, of course, that Jesus spoke on was, um, first of all, do you know what the favorite topic Jesus spoke on? Anybody know? You're not going to like it, probably. Giving. He spoke more about giving than any other topic in, in, in the New Testament. He spoke, when they quote him and have all of his words in there, more about giving than anything else. But one of his other favorite topics to talk about was serving. Um, and one of Jesus' most profound statements about serving came from his quote about his purpose for coming to earth, by God, why God sent him to earth, and it involves serving. Here's what he said in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man, meaning Jesus, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you think about the people who thought he was going to come as a great earthly king, this idea of him coming not to be served was one of those things that left them saying, what? Sometimes the fullest 
extent of serving is seen in the willingness of the one doing the serving. It's not actually maybe the result of them serving, but it's in the willingness of that person to serve. And in the verse, Jesus is saying, I am willing. I am willing to serve you, each and every one of you, uh, in whatever manner it takes so that you can be forgiven of sin. And he served each one of us by going to the cross and dying for sin. And for Jesus, the act of serving it really has nothing to do with the social status. But because in Jesus' day, if you were called a servant, there was a certain social status that you had. It certainly wasn't the same as the status of a king. But they had a hard time um, getting their heads or their hearts wrapped around what he was saying. Instead of serving, having anything to do with social status, Jesus was teaching them it has everything to do with your heart status. Or what he was saying about himself being a servant was more about what his heart was revealing other than the actual things he was going to do. Now you can understand their difficulty in seeing Jesus as a servant of others because the prophets of old, in the Old Testament, the prophets of old had spoke of this promised Messiah coming, which Jesus said he was the Messiah, and it was thought that the Messiah would be this earthly king sent from God. That he would be a king that was as powerful and strong as David. That he would be a king that was as smart and wise as Solomon. And that he would reign over Israel like those kings had done. And he would once again raise Israel up to become this mighty earthly kingdom. Everyone was waiting for God to make this happen. Not only in the day that they were alive, but if you go back, it's one of the most amazing things about the faith of the Israelites. They passed on this hope of the coming Messiah from decade to decade, from generation to generation, from century to century, Hundreds and hundreds of years, they kept passing on this hope that this generation today will be the one that sees the king come. And if it isn't, we'll tell the next generation, you may be the one. And they kept passing on this hope. Everyone was waiting for God to make it happen. And they were hoping that this Jesus, this Messiah or in the Greek, the Christ, would be the one that was set on the throne of, in Jerusalem. But when Jesus said things like we read in Mark 10.45, I mean, it just wasn't clear to them what he was meaning by this. Then one day during the Passover festival, in fact, it is the last Passover festival that Jesus uh, would be at, uh, John records a major event. And the, and the moment that people had been waiting for is coming. But Jesus explains this event in terms that was typical, uh, um, almost a yogiism. He, leaving them scratching their heads. We go to John chapter 12, beginning at verse 20. 
Now there were some Greeks among those, and that's an important thing to, to, to look at, focus there. They were Greeks. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. So these are non-Jews that are going to, to worship at Passover. And these Greeks, these then came to Philip, one of the disciples, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. All right, so they're there, they're telling Jesus, there's this Greek entourage. They want to speak to you, Jesus. And here says, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now earlier in the book of, of John, that's in John 12, but earlier in the book of John, at the end of, ver, of chapter 11, John records how the crowds were gathered for this Passover event in Jerusalem, and how they were really interested in whether Jesus would even show up at this Passover. And in, in verse 12, or in chapter 12, the crowd welcomes Jesus to Jerusalem with great acclamation. We, we, we refer to it as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's the, the kind of celebration that is reserved for an earthly king when he enters into a city. This is the kind of celebration they are doing as if Jesus is the king. Now among that Passover crowd is a group of Greeks and they come forward because they want to meet Jesus. And these Greeks are not just Greek speaking Jews, but rather they are Gentiles, non-Jews. And the fact that these Greeks went up to worship at the feast, it suggests that the Greeks were converts to Judaism. So they were, these were called pious Gentiles who were attracted to Judaism. And they came to the feast to worship God, suggesting that they had an openness of heart to God. It is their interest in the things of God that led them to seek out Jesus. And even their statement, we want to see Jesus, it's, it's significant because as soon as Jesus is informed of them coming, and what they said, his immediate response, the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And to the disciples, this is, these words are mysterious. Uh, the response, though, it actually addresses the issue everyone had been wondering about. And that is, when will Jesus make his move to become king? He's about to make his move, but not to be an earthly king. And the meaning of his words to them, the disciples, it, it's not exactly clear. 
And apparently at that moment, Jesus was not even speaking directly to the Greek entourage at all, but he was just speaking to his disciples, and he was explaining the Greeks have a place in the kingdom. Remember our verse, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. The hearts of these Greeks seeking Jesus was like the final signal that the time for his death to take place had come. And then he then follows up with the hour has come statement in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Through Jesus' death, a great crop will be produced as he draws all of humanity, all of humanity to himself. And through his death, everyone, all nations, will have access to him as Lord and Savior. Also, it seems strange that he referred to his death as a glorification. But the death of the Son is at the heart of the Heavenly Father's revelation to us. Jesus came to reveal that God is a God of love. And that love is revealed in God's willingness to lay down his own son's life for us. John 3.16, 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this, he had laid down his life for us. So Jesus, in his selfless act of serving, went to the cross. And in the cross, the heart of God is revealed most clearly. And suddenly the entire purpose of Messiah's coming has changed. It's not the power given by God to be an undefeatable earthly king like they had thought. It's not any kind of earthly position of power to rule over others as they had hoped. The divine attributes of Jesus reveals is that he reveals is selflessness. He reveals the humble, self-sacrificing desire of his heart. And throughout his life, Jesus has done his Father's will. And such selflessness is a key component in eternal life that he offers. God's own life is a life of love that denies self for the sake of his beloved. And therefore, such love is the very nature of life itself, that is, real life. And our acts of selfishness is the destruction of life. I think we could probably all look back and realize that the cross is not just a, a one-time uh, time event that atones for sin, though it certainly is that. But the cross is more. It is also the most dramatic case of selfless serving of others. Look again at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus uses this image of a seed that must fall into the ground and die in order to produce much fruit. 
Isn't that like a wonderful mystery of life coming through death? I mean, I was taught that from a, lot, uh, a child about a dead seed brings life. And here in the Midwest, is, with all the farming, we understand that. Dead seeds left in a package, so to speak, is alone, and it will not produce. But a seed dying in that ground, it produces much fruit. Jesus' death was the seed planted. The fruit it produces is the fruit of salvation. And that fruit is seen in those people who believe in Jesus for their eternal life. And certainly, those around him understood farming. They knew that analogy that he just gave. They understood that agriculture is so huge in Israel. So they knew that seeds buried in the ground eventually produces a great harvest of fruit. And it is at this point that Jesus follows up this analogy with one of those sort of yogiism type statements. In verse 25 he says, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. You love your life, you lose it. You hate your life, you gain eternal life. What Jesus is actually doing with this statement is making a connection between those who are the fruit, which is the believers, and the call to live as a disciple. This is the call to radical discipleship. If you are a disciple of Christ, you are called to discipleship, radical discipleship. You know, Jesus made radical calls to people's lives all through his ministry. Remember when he went up to the fishermen and he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to lay down your nets. I want you to stop fishing, stop earning a living, and follow me. Commit your life to following me. And the verse says, he who loves his life, and that Greek word here that we translate it, it, as life, it, it, it refers to the physical life. Uh, it's more comprehensive. It, it takes on one's whole being. It's not just the physical, but it's the whole being, one's self, that we, you were created to be in God's image. So that word is talking about the entirety of what God created in his image that is you. So your life was not created to be a self-sufficient center of being. But rather, your life was created to be in union with God and receive eternal life from him. God gave you life. But whether your life has uh, merely a, a mortal future or if your life has an eternal future depends on your relationship with Jesus. Right now, your life is in one of these two categories. It is all about self. It's all about me. It's all about my life on earth and what I want and what I do. And, and, and that's mortal. Uh, it's a mortal future that you have. Eternal future depends on your relationship with Jesus. Um, if self has been given over to Jesus then your life is eternal. Now here's what I think we all know. 
The love of this self is at the heart of sin. When we love self, that is the beginning and the heart of sin. And it began in the rebellion in the Garden of Eden. The minute that Adam and Eve took their focus off of God, who was with them every day, but the minute they took their focus off of God and they turned and began to focus on the forbidden fruit, they began to think about self and what they wanted. And at that moment, their lives were corrupted with sin. That selfish rebellion brought death and it continues to bring death. When Jesus said the one who loves this self, that is their earthly life, will lose it. He does not mean lose it in the sense of misplaced. The Greek here, word here translated as lose is a word uh, as he who loves his life, lose it means to destroy it. The call is for detachment from this self. And that's what Jesus means in verse 25. It says, he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Jesus said the word hate, when he told his disciples that they must hate their father and mother, it's not a hate that means despise or a hate that means uh, reject or a hate that means uh, detest them in some despicable uh, disrespectful way, but he's speaking about a choice. He's speaking about an, what you're attached to. And, and Jesus means the devotion and the obedience to Jesus must be so thorough that nothing else, excuse me, nothing else is distracting. The same language is used when he teaches that one can only serve one master. So Jesus is not speaking of hatred of self, but rather of a rejection of self's claim, self's claim to autonomy. I don't want to be controlled by Jesus. I don't want to give my life to God. I want to be on my own. I want to, be, I want to control myself as a human being. He says, you, you must reject that. That's the kind, you hate that kind of thought in your life. So the message is not referring to some kind of self-destruction or masochism. It just calls you to be one to reject the way of rebellion, selfishness, and live in the light of eternity. And I, my hope has been that over these last weeks, we have learned that the heart of discipleship is love. And that the heart of love is sacrifice. And that the loving result of sacrifice is serving, serving others. The kind of denial of self, that kind of a denial, opens one to receive the divine life that never dies. Verse 26 says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
the reward of serving, even through death, is for us to be with Jesus. I'm, I don't know how, I can't describe it because we don't know, but it says we are going to be honored by the Father. Can you imagine God the Creator who created you in His image, who let His Son die on the cross so that you might be forgiven of sin, and you follow that path with Jesus, and the Father says, if you do that and you serve Jesus, I am going to honor you. How does God honor? It's got to be amazing, right? Beyond our comprehension. The honor we will receive from the Father comes because of our union with Christ. The one whom the Father honors. And such a union with God in Christ and such honor from the Father are what we were created for to begin with. He created you to be honored by him because you serve the risen God. Here's our next step for this week. Ask this question. To what lengths are you willing to serve those who don't know the forgiveness of sin? That's in your outline if you've got that outline. To what lengths are we willing to serve those who don't know the forgiveness of sin? Let, let's make it a little more personal. To what lengths are you willing to serve those who don't know the forgiveness of sin? How about even a little bit more personal? To what lengths am I, Roy, willing to serve those who don't know the forgiveness of sin. Put your name in there. To what lengths am I willing to serve those who don't know the forgiveness of sin? Jesus was willing to do everything that he had to do, even his death on a cross. You see, this is one of the hardest concepts, I think, for us trying to live out Christianity day to day. That we are to serve to that level. That every day our hearts should be thinking about those that don't know Christ and asking ourselves, what might I be able to do to serve them? that will eventually bring them to understand the love of Christ. What am I willing to do? Let's pray. First of all, Father, you gave us the great commandment to love you completely love you more than anything else and a commandment just like it you said is to love others as yourself you gave us the great commission to 
therefore go or while we're going through life make disciples and you opened that up to say all nations so that we could never believe that it's just a certain group that we're supposed to reach but everyone well every day there are people who are perishing from this world that don't know you it's, it's such a heartbreaking thing for you I know it has to be heartbreaking that you've done so much to bring us salvation and still yet people are perishing I thank you for everybody here that knows you Lord what a great thing that is we celebrate it we know someday you're going to honor each one of us but Lord may the honor be even larger because every day we live out our call to be disciple makers and we ask your strength Holy Spirit we ask for your conviction and your wisdom and we ask it in Christ's name